Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Last month, we invited nutritionist Marion Nessel and food writer Kerry Truman on our show to talk about their new book from the University of California Press called Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. And we got an incredible response. Lots of listeners called in to ask about nutrition and food policy. It was so popular that we've invited them back to continue the discussion. So I'm very pleased to welcome Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman to our show now. And if you have a question you want to ask Marion, you can give us a call at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Marion and, uh, and Carrie, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. Thank you. There are a lot of interesting things in the book that we weren't able to get to the last time. So I'll pick up where we left off as much as I can. Um, and uh, Carrie, of course, I'll be addressing my questions primarily to Marion, but please jump in w- whenever you want to add something, okay? Thank you. I appreciate that. Marion, in the book, you bring up the idea of establishing a national food policy agency. What's the current situation? Is this food policy currently split among a lot of different agencies, the the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, Department of Labor, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and and OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration? Wow. Yeah, not to mention FEMA and all the places that do emergency food aid as well. Um, It's, you know, a lot of this is historical, that the agencies developed as there were problems that needed that government needed to solve and this occurred over a 150 or 200 year period um, and now we're dealing with the results of that history which is a highly fragmented oversight system mainly distributed between the department of agriculture and the fda for foods that we eat on a daily basis, but the Environmental Protection Agency deals with a lot of the environmental issues, um, and the Federal Trade Commission deals with advertising. (laughs) And there have been attempts to coordinate these policies, but they don't work very well because the agencies act independently, um, are governed by different laws, and it's a mess particularly between the Department of Agriculture, which deals with most of the foods that, with most of the food issues that come up, again, for historical reasons. And the FDA, which deals with most of the foods we eat. So you say you would love to have, uh, to create uh, an agency, the job of National Food Policy Advisor. If you were head of such an agency, uh, would you be able to coordinate all of the different uh, programs of, of the uh, the agencies that are handling them now? Well, in theory, yes. In <laughs> practice, with enormous difficulty. <laughs> you know, but from a but you're wishing this on yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would depend on how much power I had. <laughs> if I had the power to wave a magic wand and I wasn't worried about being reelected and I had <laughs> enough money to do what I wanted to do. There are plenty of things that could be done that would make a really big difference to the lives of vast numbers of people in the United States, starting with making sure that everybody had enough to eat. Isn't having a coherent food policy especially important right now because we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, and we're not making sure that everybody has enough to eat, you know, with millions and millions of people out of work. It isn't surprising that people are having trouble making um, uh, ends meet and get, having enough money to pay their rent and buy food and do all of these things. That seems to me to be our most immediate priority, is to solve that problem. As a nutritionist, what advice would you give people to help them stay healthy during the pandemic? Well, Are there certain I... foods that can help prevent infection if we're exposed or, or prevent severe cases of the coronavirus even if we are infected? Well, the, the great thing about nutritional advice is that there's one diet that does everything, um, and that's a diet that's largely but not necessarily exclusively plant-based. Um, so, you know, if you want to make sure that you're eating for health, you want to eat your veggies and don't overeat. So does that mean vegetarians and vegans 
are less likely to be infected? Uh, they're not less likely to be infected, but they are more likely to be healthier and to survive the infection or to have fewer uh, of the really bad symptoms. Uh, the people who are most at risk for the bad outcomes of this virus are people who have um, diet-related chronic diseases or chronic disease in general, but a lot of the chronic diseases are, are related to diet, like type 2 diabetes or heart disease. Um, high blood like, pressure, obesity. or high. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are uh, related to diet and are making people more at risk for bad outcomes. Uh, so, you know, the, the object of the game is if you're going to be infected, you don't want to have any symptoms. And, and during this pandemic, many people are at home more, cooking and baking more. For, at one point, the, there was a real shortage of flour at the supermarkets. Many gyms and pools are closed. So is that all adding to the health problems? Well, it depends. Some people are healthier because they're cooking more, not eating out more, and controlling the food that's in their house. Um, some people are home and they're bored out of their minds, so they're eating too much. Um, and some people don't have the money to have any choice about what they're eating. So they're in trouble over those kinds of issues. Where are they going to get food? Huge lines at food banks. You know, we haven't seen anything like this since the Great Depression of the 1930s. A reminder that uh, if you uh, listeners want to uh, get involved in this conversation, and you don't have to stick to the topics we're discussing, but uh, any of the things that Mary Nessel or Kerry Truman can talk about. Our number is 212-209-2877. You have yeah. a, a blog called Food Politics, which is also the title of your 2002 book called Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. In a recent I'm, post, I'm, go ahead. I would say I'm nothing if not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> In a recent post, you suggested that people with adequate levels of vitamin D are better off to fight off COVID-19. Why vitamin D in particular? I've heard mostly about vitamin C. Well, actually, I did, uh, all I did was report that these are studies that are finding an association between vitamin D and better health outcome. Um, vitamin D is interesting. First of all, it's not a vitamin, it's a hormone. And it's one that is induced by the action of sunlight on skin. And it's hard to separate out people's lifestyles from um, the amount of vitamin. You don't get this vitamin very much from food. Uh, you get it mostly from the action of sunlight on skin. And people who are outdoors more, who are more physically active, are likely to be healthier and their vitamin D levels will be higher. And what the studies are showing is that people with higher vitamin D levels seem to have a better outcome. I'm not sure what that means exactly. Should you take supplements? I never recommend supplements. Ah, so well, hard, to, hard to know. Well, uh, it, right now it's snowing where I live. I don't think <laughs> I'm going to get much sunlight. But what about things like whole milk, which uh, some people won't drink. It doesn't, isn't whole milk rich in vitamin D? All milk is. It's added to all milks, whatever the fat content is. Um, and that's in there to make sure that kids who drink milk have uh, adequate levels of this. But, you, you know, the vitamin is stored. And so it's not something that you have to have every day. If you're out in the summer sunshine for a lot of time during the summer, you ought to have enough. But there's lots and lots of evidence that the particular intermediate compound that's involved in the synthesis of the, act, of the active hormone, um, that people who have lower levels of that don't do as well as people who have higher levels. I think there's a lot more research that's needed, but I tend to be a supplement skeptic. So uh, you, sh you should take that into consideration. So I, so I, I shouldn't I be taking those. Up? Yes, sure. Hey, hey, hey let, let Carrie say <laughs> Join something. Yeah, I want to hear what Carrie has to say. Yeah, go ahead, Carrie. Kind, Marian. No, here's the thing. I have this argument with myself every day when I am going to venture outside because I know what Marion's saying about the value of absorbing vitamin D from the sun through your skin. However, 
my family has a history of skin cancer, and so I, every morning I go through this thing of like, should I put sunscreen on today because it's a little cloudy? I know I need to get some sun, but how much sun is good sun? Like, where do you fall on this line of when to apply sunscreen and when not to apply it? Because aren't I blocking the absorption of the vitamin D when I put the sunscreen on? Well, I think the recommendation is 15 to 30 minutes of sunshine without sunscreen and then put it on. And is there a particular time of day that it's better to get that sun? Because obviously sun ex- exposure is more intense from, well, say, Around noon, two. sure. Yeah. Oh, but that's when I work. <laughs> I'm on the air at 1 o'clock. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go on the air at noon. You're protected. So Marion, I better start broadcasting outside. from outside. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not too personal, Marion, do you, when, do, when, if at all, do you apply sunscreen? Because I know you go out kayaking. We know yeah, that. I turn out to be enormously allergic to sunscreens of all time kinds, so wow. I don't use them. So do you just wear a hat to protect yourself, yeah. or do you just not wear it? Yeah, if the sun's really strong, I wear a hat. Um, but the, um, you know, I'm just somebody who can That's another reason why I don't like them, and I have terrible, terrible skin reaction if I have sunlight on sunscreen. Ooh, very mm-hmm. bad. It's like having poison ivy. The, um, and I've never found one that didn't do that. So the um, so I don't you know I wear a hat or but okay. I try to get outside, even yeah. in the winter. Now my How doctor do say, suggested that I take vitamin D three and vitamin C supplements. Uh, is my doctor wrong? I'm not going to argue with your doctor. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'm, so far I have so far I haven't come down. <laughs> with the coronavirus so maybe uh it's working in some instances hey um, whatever works uh my guests are uh marion nessel and carrie truman we're talking about uh nutrition um marion is really interesting paulette goddard professor of nutrition uh, food Studies and Public Health Emerita at NYU. Paulette Goddard, the actress? The very same. Um, she was, uh, you know, a very famous movie star in the 1940s, mm. married or possibly not married to Charlie Chaplin. But later <laughs> she was married to Eric Marie or Mark, who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. And not they bad. traveled... They traveled in very fancy intellectual circles in New York City. They didn't have any children, and she left um, her estate to New York University, where I teach, um, and that funded a bunch of professorships. And I was told that she left her jewelry to NYU. I just love that. I hope it's true. (laughs) And also with us is Carrie Truman, T-R-U-E-M-A-N, not like the president. Uh, an environmental advocate, writer, and, and consultant, uh, and collaborator with Mary Nessel on the book that we are, are leaning on here. Let's ask Marion what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health from University of California Press. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I don't know if we're getting any calls. I did uh, give out that phone number, 212-209-2877, if you want to join the conversation. Uh, Meanwhile, early on in the pandemic, there were reports of farmers dumping vegetables and milk because they couldn't get them to the market. Were those problems caused by the pandemic uh, and different from the usual food waste that we see? Oh, absolutely. Um, what that what the pandemic exposed was that we have two completely different, separate, never to meet supply chains in the United States. One directed towards institutions, restaurants, and large feeding operations, and the other towards supermarkets. And when the restaurants and institutions and institutional feeding shut down when the pandemic started, there was no place for that food to go. It couldn't be diverted to the supply chains for supermarkets because it wasn't set up to do that. Um, So that caused an enormous problem and farmers didn't have any outlets for whatever it was they were producing and were destroying food at the same time that you saw these cars lined up for miles in front Mm. of food banks 
for handouts of food, and that problem has not really been solved. Um, is that solved, something that this, the something. National Food Policy Agency you propose could have taken uh, care of, an emergency yeah, food mean, program, you, which could have been activated quickly? Yeah, you call in the National Guard and have them start collecting food and distributing where it's needed. Or you take some emergency action, which is quite possible for government to do, to intervene immediately, but that's not what happened. What are we going to do with the turkey glut? Do <laughs> <laughs> yes. we have a turkey glut? Do we have a turkey glut? People oh, yeah. Still doing well, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of turkeys. That people aren't going to the supermarkets as much uh, in preparation for Thanksgiving as they have in the past because they're not going to have big family gatherings. We oh, hope. They're going to they're look for smaller ones. <laughs> right, Small the, turkeys. The, the turkey Small farmers turkeys. aren't necessary. It's, it's, it's a challenge for them to recalibrate now because their plan was to do the butterball size turkeys mm -hmm. that are most in demand and it's actually uh, my understanding is it's problematic for them to try to scale down at this late date and deliver say a 12 pound turkey for that smaller family gathering obviously it's not the end of the world to have turkey leftovers <laughs> a lot of uh, leftovers a lot of leftovers yeah so I you do know. even when you have the big family together some of those turkeys are so huge yeah, but what, what, what Carrie's pointing out is that farmers have to plan long in advance. Mm -hmm. um, they have to plant, they have to raise, they have to do all of these things long in advance of when they think they're going. these things are going to come to market. And if the market isn't there, they're in big trouble. Um, and we've seen this across the country with vegetable growers, with potato growers, with milk producers. I mean, the dairy industry is in big trouble, of, I mean, even more than it has been. Um, and now turkeys. I hadn't thought about turkeys, but yes, well, and also, I can understand about, why that's a problem. And think about the school lunch situation. All of the kids who aren't going to school mm -hmm. and being fed at the school cafeterias this is another area where there's all this food that's been grown to deal with that, and they can't just pivot and find a way to get it to the people who desperately need it. What about the, the Farmers to Families food boxes? Is that a, a USDA program to get that food is. out to people in need? Yeah, the Farmers to Family food box program um, is something that uh, Sonny Perdue, who's the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, has been pushing for since 2018. Um, in 2018, he announced that instead of uh, food stamps, what the department really wanted people to have would be these food boxes. And the idea would be that the boxes would contain the produce that farmers were producing and they would be distributed through food banks to um, people who needed them. But it's an enormously cumbersome system that has been under heavy criticism, and not just for me. Lots of people have criticized it for... Um, not getting the boxes to the people who need them, for not getting into the boxes what's supposed to be in the boxes, and for doing very, very little good for small farmers. I talked to a small farmer, a medium-sized farmer, a couple of weeks ago who said that he had had one of the original contracts for the farmers to uh, families' food boxes, and he was able to do that and distribute it to local food banks and so forth. But then when the next contract came up, he was denied a contract because it was given to the biggest uh, distributor in his state, Cisco, the biggest distributor. So the, the program ended up being a program that mostly benefited distributors. Didn't Hasn't it also been politicized a bit? Didn't uh, every box have a letter from President Trump in it? it so it that does. people would think that he had personally sent them the food? Yes, it has a letter for holding the letters out. <laughs> yeah, but of most people. of the food banks are pulling the letters out, giving yeah. them something else to do. I mean, the <laughs> other thing is this is shoring up the food bank system when what you really want is a federal program that gives people enough money to buy the food they need. And what the Department of Agriculture should have done and the government should have done was to extend um, SNAP benefits, food stamp benefits across the board. I mean, that's been a complicated uh, issue, but the department, the, this particular administration has done everything it possibly could to weaken the SNAP program.
It's done a pretty and good job. Do you have any idea why? I mean, it, it, it oh, doesn't yeah, seem sure. to. How does it fit in with the president's view of the world? Well, the president doesn't believe that government is responsible for individual um, welfare. And SNAP is a program that benefits poor people. The attitude towards SNAP is that poor people are undeserving. They lie. They cheat. They're, they're poor because it's their choice. They chose to be poor, and therefore you shouldn't reward them for making those kinds of bad choices. Uh, so you keep the benefits as low as possible. This is a welfare attitude that dates back to the English poor laws of the 1600s. When the English poor laws were developed, they were developed with the attitude that the poor were poor by choice, not victims of circumstances or the bad luck of being born into poor families. Um, and so that attitude persists. And we are hearing something similar from Jared Kushner recently about yeah, we certainly uh, are. about African Americans in America. If they just um, tried harder. If, if I could yeah. interject one note of possible cautious optimism about this mindset, I've been struck by the footage I've seen on the evening news of people who never in their lives had to ask for any assistance in the past. People lining up and, you know, there's even, to some degree, these people feel a sense of shame, but I'm hoping maybe this will engender more compassion and empathy on their part to recognize that sometimes people experience hardship despite making the best efforts, to, you know, through no fault of their own. Maybe these people who are asking for food for the first time in their lives ever can extend that level of compassion to other people. Just a little hope. Should oh, we take a call? Go, go ahead, Marion, and then we'll take a call. I was going to say, let's hope so, uh, because there are so many people who are unemployed. Um, you know, somewhere between 20 to 30 million people are on unemployment insurance. And then there are huge numbers who are unemployed who aren't getting unemployment insurance. We don't really know what the real numbers are, but there are vast numbers of Americans who don't have jobs. And those jobs, jobs a lot this. of those jobs are not coming back. I think I heard a statistic for New York City, something like 30% mm. of jobs lost may not come back. Where are those people going to go? What are they going to do? And what's going to happen to them? Where are they going to get the money to buy food? I, I, I don't, yeah. let alone pay rent, which is a whole other issue. Um, so yeah. I think we're in for very hard times. And we, uh, as I said, we're inviting listeners to join the conversation. Our number here is 212-209-2877. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Yes, am I on the air? You are. Oh, hi. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I was enjoying the conversation. I'm, uh, I was interested in the vitamin D um, because I have been... Um, reading up on it too and it is a vitamin that is as they were saying it like a hormone and it has 50 different function in the in the physical body from your physical you know uh, system to your mental system to different brain functions and it is absorbable through the skin as they were saying but a lot of people they eat the vitamin D and what happens is that by the time it reaches your stomach it gets dissolved and destroyed. So the best way to take in vitamin um, D, this is by uh, Dr. John Dullard. He is the homeopath and he is uh, promoting this because he has been doing it himself, is um, topically use it on your skin, like you do with magnesium. You just put a couple of liquid vitamin D in your hand and you massage it on your skin and that nourishes your whole system. <coughs> It goes straight to your liver, start producing the vitamin D you need to, it goes to your kidney, continue producing the other vitamin D that you need, and then it nourishes your whole system. And <clears throat> if you do that, you could check with your doctor. I have done it, and my vitamin D has been up all the time since then. So it's something that's very recommendable. And what I wanted to also add is that it's time that people invest a little bit more um, of their time finding out about what this body really needs and what it, how it makes it function 
in the best optimal way. Because well, that's what we're trying to do on this show. But aren't there a, a number of different Ds? I mean, I have vitamin D3 pills in my house. Uh, what are vitamin one, D1 and D2? Oh, dear. <laughs> and first of all, what do you think about rubbing it on your skin? Um, I have no idea whether that works or not. I've not seen anything on it. Um, but if you're going to do that, you might as well go outside and wave your arms around under the sun. I really think that that's the best way to do it. But, you know, it could work. It worked for her. I don't know. I haven't some, seen anything on that. Well, some people live messy. in caves. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, what about vitamin D? Are, are there many different vitamin Ds? Um, there are, but basically they have the same effect. So it's not something that anybody really needs to worry about. The, um, you know, and the biochemistry is complicated. I, I don't want to get into it now. I don't think okay. I can explain. I don't think I can explain it clearly enough. <laughs> caller, is that okay? I guess uh, the caller is gone. Uh, but but this is uh, an issue where there is quite a, a wide range of opinions, isn't it? It depends on um, who you're reading and what radio shows you're listening to. Absolutely. Of course it does. Um, it so how do we know the, the, the real truth? Well, you ask me, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. That's why we have you on this show. That's always but, my answer to that. <laughs> I applauded the caller for encouraging people to do more research. The problem is, that what, like what you're both saying, is how do we know who, who are the trusted sources? Obviously, I'm biased, and I trust Marion. But we are living in an era where skepticism towards legitimate scientists and experts is another epidemic of its own kind. And at the same time, people are taking the most demented propaganda and unfiltered nonsense, to put it politely, off of sources that are just flagrantly – should send up red flags immediately. So we've got this terrible cognitive dissonance. And I, if anyone knows how to fix that, I'd love to hear the answer. Well, maybe uh, we'll be getting more calls after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to shout down my vegetables. I I don't know whether the Beach Boys wrote that with Marion Nestle in mind, but uh, I thank them for writing that song. Before we get back to my conversation with Marion Nestle and, and Carrie Truman, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting what we do on Leonard Lopez at Large by calling right now, 516-620-3602, by going online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, to support this station. And becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to support us without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. And, and we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of London Lopate at Large. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org during this show, we would be happy to send you a copy of Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health by my guests Marion Nessel and Carrie Truman. It's our way of saying thanks. Again, all you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to your computer or, or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up to become a BAI buddy at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or what is whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. Becoming a BAI buddy is a great way to contribute because it provides the station with a steady source of support. But however you contribute, 
the important thing is to play your part in keeping this show and this legendary radio station going. We are the only station on the New York radio dial that's completely listener sponsored. We don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. So we are don't owe anybody anything. We just do what we think is the right thing to do. So please call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org online and Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. A big thanks from all of us to everyone who has become a member of the station during this challenging time. We need you now more than ever. And let's get back to my guests, Marion Nessel and Kerry Truman. We are talking about nutrition and related matters. Uh, they're late. They have uh, a new book out called Let's Ask Marion what you need to know about the politics of food, nutrition, and health. It's from the University of California Press. And uh, we, one of the things that um, we've been hearing a lot about in the news is uh, that of several major outbreaks of COVID-19 in meat processing plants. Why was this industry so, so hard hit, more so than other food production businesses? Well, that's pretty easy to answer. First of all, they're working absolutely shoulder to shoulder on the slaughter lines and on the packing lines. So they're really, really close together. And they're largely immigrant populations who live in crowded conditions at home. Um, many of them have uh, chronic diseases that make them more susceptible. But if it only would take one spreader within a plant to spread it um, quickly throughout the plant because they're so close together. Um, and there now been, I mean, it's, uh, there's um, a reporter for the Food and Environment Reporting Network, Leah Douglas, who's the only person I know of who's keeping track of this. And her latest figures show that there have been 70,000 cases wow. of illness among meatpacking and farm workers and more than 300 deaths. So this has been just an enormously serious problem. And what was so upsetting about it was that these people were forced to work. They couldn't stay home. They couldn't isolate. Um, in many cases, they were forced to work when sick. And there's, there, there's now evidence from Freedom of Information Act uh, obtaining of emails that show that the meat plants um, essentially lobbied the government to make sure that the plant stayed open um, and that and fought the public health recommendations in every way they possibly could. Workers' rights in the food industry is a topic that you cover in your book. Um, are pay and working conditions in, in, the, in the food industry, from what you mentioned, migrant workers in the fields to slaughterhouses and restaurant workers, worse than in other industries? Well, they're paid worse, for starters. Why? Why? Uh, well, for because of laws that were passed a long time ago uh, that were laws that were designed to protect workers did not affect certain categories of workers. So they didn't, they didn't apply to farm workers, to restaurant workers, um, or to workers in those industries, largely for racist reasons because most of the workers on those, in those places were people of color. And the, um, in order to sell those laws to people in to those southern states, they were excluded from those laws. So we're now in a situation, well, I mean, we don't have restaurants now so much anymore, but restaurant workers are paid a minimum wage of $2.13 an hour in many uh, states. Because they're expected to get tips, but... That's not always the case. Not always. Not always the case. So simple minimum wage laws don't apply to them. And worse than that, they make so little money that they don't qualify for unemployment insurance. So when they were put out of work, they were, they were you know, left to fend for themselves. And it's the fending for, for yourself part under this pandemic that's so difficult to get, you know, for me to get my head around, that how are people supposed to get through this? It's, it's just, it seems not right to me. Let's take some more calls, okay? Our 
number is 212-209-2877 if you want to speak to Marion uh, and and uh, Carrie. Uh, WBAI, you're on the air. Hello? It's you. I hear you breathing. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next we call. We have a heavy okay, breathing call. Okay, we're going to go to the next. Should we go to the next call? <laughs> BAI, you're on the air. Am I on the air? You are on the air. One of the problems that people have is that there's a bit of a delay from uh, when we talk and when you hear it on the radio. So it's always best when you call in to, to keep the phone to your ear. Okay, hi. Hi. A comment and a question. Interested to hear the guest. Uh, talking about vegging out, I assume at times she must be a couch potato. And my question, <laughs> not even close, <laughs> but I heard you say you veg out, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody does. Marion, did you, did you say that? I don't think so. I think I said eat your veggies. Yeah, and, and can I just add, Marion is one of the most active and fit people I know, and it's scary. Like, I don't know when she ever sits down, to be honest. So if she said vegging out, that would be out of character in that context. But she certainly is a tireless advocate for eating more vegetables. So. Well, maybe that clear she that says up? that one does veg out. <laughs> Definitely not a couch potato. This is a woman, yeah, I can't overstate how active she is, so more okay, so than I am. question. Um, what do you think about cod liver? I'll hear your answer on the air. Thank you. What was the go? I, I'm cod sorry, liver. I missed it. Cod I liver mean, oil. Like, what do you think? Cod liver oil? Oh, my goodness. When I was five <laughs> years old, yeah. I had to take cod liver oil. It was um, a source of vitamin A, and I, I, oh, I, and I remember being given spoonfuls of it in orange juice. I couldn't drink orange juice for years afterwards. That's because um, my, my mother used to listen to Carlton Fredericks on the radio, and ah. he used to promote cod liver oil. We had it as well. Yeah, I but mean, is, it any, is it good for us? Well, it's got vitamins and it's got omega-3 fatty acids and it's got those kinds of things, but you can get those from food. Why would you not want to get it from food? I always would rather get my nutrients from food. Okay. Listener, did you hear? I guess she took it off the air. Okay, let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Yes. Hi. Uh, hi. I was surprised to hear your guest say she never prescribes her patients taking vitamins. Uh, that protocol uh, goes against or completely ignores a vast inventory of published studies and uh, clinical research showing that supplementation with vitamins, vitamin C, D, and E, uh, has demonstrable and powerful effects in supporting the immune system, in fighting disease, and in doses that far, far exceed that which can be derived from diet alone. So uh, this uh, seems to be a, a sort of a non-scientific, or in a good part, uh, a, a protocol that ignores a vast wealth of information that could be very useful in promoting good health. Marion, you are a professor of, uh, of nutrition, food studies, yeah. public health, yeah, so you, do you disagree with the caller? Yeah, I think that the caller and I are going to have to agree to disagree on this. My, my reading of the literature on, on vitamin supplements is that they are very useful for people who have demonstrable vitamin deficiencies which most people in the United States do not have. Most people in the United States, the problem that they have is eating too much food, not, um, not, not having enough, although the pandemic may have changed that. Uh, my reading of the supplement literature is that there is virtually no evidence that oh my goodness! Impossible. There's a there's a wealth of evidence. I can't believe you're saying this to be so oblivious of the mountain of evidence. The Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, even the British Medical Journal, has just come out and said how, how touted vitamin D as helpful in, pro to be oh, in protective. Good, a food fight on the air. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. 
As I said, my reading of the literature is that there's very little evidence in controlled clinical trials that vitamin supplements make healthy people healthier, but other people can review the evidence in different ways, and I think we just have to agree to disagree. Can I just interject a note for... I, I want to just put in a word for a middle ground here because I, I am sympathetic to certain aspects of both these arguments, but one thing that concerns me about the supplements is how many people I know who think that they can obviate the need for a healthy diet by taking supplements. So I, don't, I think there may be a place for supplements, and certainly in some cases it, it, it has proven benefits for people. But if you're popping vitamin pills so that you can continue to eat an unhealthy fast food diet and thinking that that's going to work out, I think that I that's think a that miscalculation. I a very small percentage of the population, and I think it's, huh. it's advisable to educate the public on the benefits of uh, Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to declare this a draw and <laughs> go, go to another call. Thank you so much for your call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, good conversation. I've heard about the D, uh, yeah, the D and the sunshine, obviously, and they're going to, you know, um, cloud seed to keep us from getting vitamin D because you don't get it that much in your food. So they're going to cloud seed to make us sick, you know. But it is obvious ever since, uh, you know, I don't want to bring this up, but ever since 9-11 that the media and everybody else isn't telling us the truth, and those are the people that are in power. So, like, the whole thing with the masks. I could put the mask on with my oxygen sensor on, and I see my oxygen go down from 98 to 96, 95. So I know they're lying about that. Uh, they're lying know, about they're lying. what? That, they, that it prevents the, the spread of coronavirus? I don't think so. That it doesn't so. affect the wearer's oxygen levels. That it doesn't drop the wearer's oxygen levels, which is detrimental to anybody's health. I don't care if it's two points, three points. You drop your oxygen level, you're dropping your health. You're basically so you're saying we shouldn't be wearing the masks? They said that, and that's the other thing. They said that originally don't wear masks. No, CDC, Donald Trump said it, but no, but no doctor that I know Fossey ever said, said it. it. Originally, Fauci said it was no reason to wear masks. Then he changed it, saying that we were trying oh, to save that's people. that's ancient history now. I mean, it's, it's a right, moving the, target, and now we know masks have been. We can't even have the mask debate because it's 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 like their their efficacy has been proven. And it's and that's why it's, it's one of the reasons why China has been able to to keep to get this whole thing under control because people there already were comfortable wearing masks. Right. And Don't you Taiwan think? also, Taiwan also has kept it mm -hmm. under control through. Well, it's the wearing. same culture. OK, yeah, well, thank exactly. you for your call. Let's go on to a couple of other things. Marion, is, is agricultural policy something you'd like to see change? For example, would you continue the subsidies for farmers producing corn and soy for animal feed? Uh, um, and, uh, how about ethanol? It, excuse how me? About some, how, well, 40% of the United States corn is grown f to produce ethanol as fuel for cars. Mm. I Which can't even get my head nobody, around that one. No, no, but there is no consumer demand for ethanol. That's a completely fabricated thing. Nobody ever says, gee, I want more ethanol. It's, it's not, you know, it, it, it's completely a byproduct of bad agricultural policy. So, and most of the, the, uh, the corn and soy goes to uh, animals who are in, uh, who are not grazing, but rather in feedlots. So yeah, I mean, for, should, we, should we be subsidizing them or should we be subsidizing small farmers who produce organic fruits and vegetables instead? To I make them more that. affordable. Yeah, I would love that. That would make a big difference. I think we need to link agricultural policy to health policy. It's currently not linked that way, so that the um, you know the subsidies go to the producers of uh, industrial corn and soybeans that go almost exclusively to feeding animals or to fueling cars, and that makes no sense from a food here. standpoint. I'm sorry. Also, go ahead. I was just going to say, also high fructose corn syrup, the other thing they do with that mm. kind of corn, which is yeah. another thing that we don't really need more of. One of your chapters is headed, can we stop agriculture from contributing to global warming? And we've been hearing a lot lately about sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, um, agroecology, biodiversity, permaculture, and other alternatives to industrial agriculture. Uh, Carrie, I, I assume you want to weigh in on this as an advocate. 
Sure, I'd love to. There are so many agricultural techniques that could exacerbate climate change, and it's frustrating because we have so many tools at our disposal now. It's not new technology. It's utilizing techniques that people already know about, but what we lack is the political will and the support for those kinds of agriculture. And inversely, we're seeing stepping up of burning, you know, in other countries, burning rainforests that are critical to controlling global emissions in order to produce more meat. So we're locked in, I guess, what you call a vicious loop on some fronts. But I think that climate change is going to force the hand of all of these agricultural practices because it's just, it's not going to become feasible anymore. We have historically called California, I don't know if you know this, the nation's salad bowl has been a name that was bestowed on California decades ago, and it continues to produce a tremendous amount of salad greens and all these kinds of healthy vegetables that we want to eat more of. But if California is turning into the nation's ashtray, thanks to wildfires and drought, then we're not going to be getting a lot of salad out of that region. So just that's my two cents. We did a, an interview recently with some filmmakers who uh, whose film argued that it's possible to reverse climate change by building healthy soils so that plants can take carbon out of the atmosphere. It's called carbon sequestration. Um, is that a realistic possibility? Um, it is certainly possible. Definitely it could mitigate. Reverse might be, might be an overstretch. I mean, that is wildly optimistic given what's already baked in in terms of climate change. But regenerative agriculture, absolutely, carbon sequestration is a real thing, and it can be done. But as I said, we don't have our agricultural policies do not encourage that as of now, in the future, could they? Absolutely. And I, I would love to see that happen. So. Would that be considered part of a Green New Deal? <laughs> it could very well. <laughs> absolutely. Which, Green in so every sense. That's become political again. I, I wonder why these things are political. Uh, Marion oh, can take that one on for sure. Well, that's easy to see because you know, there are winners <laughs> and losers. If subsidies are taken away from industrial agriculture, uh, industrial agriculture will lose. And industrial agriculture is extremely powerful uh, and spends a fortune on lobbying. Uh, cattle are grown. The way it was once explained to me was that cattle are grown in every state, and every state has two senators. So that allows for a lobbying system that's extremely effective. And the cattle uh, producers are united. They have one product. They're united. And therefore, all of the various cattle producers are joined together to make sure that no legislation or regulations do anything that's going to reduce their income. But there are people, farmers, who believe that grazing cattle, rather than feeding them corn and soy and feedlots, uh, actually helps the agriculture. Absolutely. It helps climate. It's better for the animals. Um, and it's, this, it's part of this regenerative agriculture movement that I think we should be supporting in every way possible. I, I think we may be able to sneak one more call in, if there is a call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Can you make it quick? Because we're kind of running out of time. Yes. Uh, I am a nutritionist. Go ahead. I am a nutrition. Yes, I am a nutritionist, and I'm pretty sure that this woman is head, uh, either head of a department or teaching and has clearly not looked at, as that gentleman said previously, the plethora Ooh. of scientific evidence of the utility of taking vitamins, particularly for people over 50. Most people over 50 do not have therapeutic doses of the type of nutrients they need, and our food source has been seriously depleted. A cherry tomato, which in 1970 had around 100 milligrams of vitamin C, today has 57. So you cannot get all your nutrition from food. And after 50, when we're not making the same, we're not digesting the same, we don't have the same vibrant enzymes, we need we need vitamins. Okay, well, we have to leave it there because we're running out of time. Marion, do you want to respond? Yeah, as I said, I think I want to get my vitamins from food. 
Um, mm. I think it's quite possible to get them from a healthy diet, and I just wish that everybody would eat their veggies. And and uh, but it doesn't hurt to take the pills if you think oh, that they're going to help so. you. Yeah, I don't think so. And and the caller is is correct in saying that food can be less nutritious now than food that was grown a few decades ago because of agricultural practices, because of soil depletion. That's not wrong to say that foods have, have experienced, some produce has experienced decreases in nutrition. Is that, would you agree with that, Marion? Oh, yeah, sure. And isn't it one of the reasons that many people recommend now that you try to eat as locally as possible? Because it's more likely that your local farmers will be using older methods? Well, yeah, and also sure. the, the food is fresher, which is already a benefit. It's going to have less time for the nutrients in it to be depleted in transit. That's one advantage. And you're less likely to get some kind of an illness from something that's wrapped in plastic. But <laughs> <laughs> that's well, all get, on another show. Flavor. <laughs> better flavor. And something that was harvested in the morning that shows up in the farmer's market stalls in the afternoon, you can't beat that short of going out in your own backyard or, in Marion's case, out on your terrace mm. to harvest your own homegrown produce, which is the greatest. That's, that's the best eating local you can get. Thank you both so much for being on our show. Uh, I've been speaking with Marion Nessel and Kerry Truman. Uh, the book, Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health, published by Princeton University Press. It's been a great California. pleasure. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview, and, and also a big thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. You can also email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org if you want to comment on a show or just to say hello. But before I sign off today, I would like to take just one last minute to ask you to support this station. If you care about the kind of content we bring you on Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this uniquely independent radio station alive on the New York radio dial. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you are comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to show your support. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health by my guests, Marion Nessel and Kerry Truman. It's our way of saying thank you for your support, but please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And thank you so much. We, we hope you'll join us on Monday when investigative journalists and regular contributor to our show, Bob Henley, will give us a final wrap-up as we head into Election Day. And I hope everyone goes out there and votes for this critical election. Have a great weekend we'll, and stay safe.